As we try and make sense of the culture of conflict in which we're living today, I want to offer to you two major ideas, both of which are constituent elements of a larger picture that I'm going to complete for us in our conversation next weekend. But it's important that we lay this groundwork first. The first idea I want to explore today is that when it comes to our most deeply held motivating convictions, the things that move us out in life into certain behaviors, we are not reasonable beings. At least we're not reasonable so much as we are first and foremost, intuitive beings. Now, I know that will rub some of us immediately wrong because way back since the time of Plato, human beings have especially enjoyed thinking of themselves themselves as highly rational creatures. And certainly God has endowed us with enormous capacities this way. Those of us who are well-educated, and that's most of the folks here in this room, especially are fond of thinking of themselves as people who make their life decisions, follow a life course according to the facts, according to uh, a a careful study of the evidence, according to uh, a careful reasoning around the arguments that are presented uh, to us. We enjoy believing that we make our moral and our political decisions entirely on the basis of this very logical Uh, We're much more like Mr. Spock than like Captain Kirk in that sense. Or at least we're, we're trying to lean in the direction of that kind of rationality. If we actually were so reasonable, however, would human beings have ever forsaken paradise? When they had everything, why would they have obsessed on this one thing they didn't have? If we were that naturally wrapped. If human beings were so clearly ordered towards the evidence and making decisions on its basis, would the the Sadducees and the Pharisees have rejected God himself standing in front of them? If we were so rational, would the Cubs sell out every year? Um, To borrow an image from psychologist Jonathan Haidt, when it comes to our cultural and political persuasions, human beings are something like Uh, an elephant and its rider, an elephant and its rider. Inside of each of us is this moral intuition, this fundamental sense about what is good and helpful and what is bad and threatening. This intuition is partly a function of nature, of the image of God stamped into us, of our genetic makeup, how much of the neurotransmitter for threat detection or the neurotransmitter for novelty is, happens to be present in our particular brain balance. It's partly a function of nurture. It's a, a, a lot a function of nature, the family we grow up with, the moral values we saw in action, working effectively, the life experiences we have along the way. But this intuition is so powerful and so big in us, it's a good analogy for it is it's an elephant. Again, not the GOP symbol, just this large creature. It leans toward this perceived good, and it leans away from that perceived evil, 
and it ambles where it wants to. Have you ever seen an elephant moving through a zoo or on a safari? You know, the elephant kind of just ambles where it wants to. It does not feel any need to follow a straight line, uh, to be that kind of predictable or consistent in its path. Now, when it gets worked up, the elephant can charge hard. And very suddenly... And next week, we're going to talk about some of the moral issues that really get our elephants going. Atop the elephant, however, sits a rider. If the elephant is our moral intuition, the rider is our moral reasoning. The rider is open to evidence. It's looking for data points, facts, patterns, and it is trying to form arguments and ways of looking at life, the rider has some influence on where the elephant goes. Um, But the rider's main tendency, its main job, is actually to serve the elephant. And this is the real shift in thinking, because we think of it just the other way around. We think of our rationality as running us. I'm saying no, our intuition runs us. Our rider responds to the intuition. Because the writer's pattern is to kind of serve like a lawyer for us or a public relations person for us. A lot of the time, the writer is simply explaining to onlookers what the elephant has chosen to do, coming up with an explanation for it that sounds plausible, or apologizing, making excuses for why, when the elephant was determined to go over here, he or she stepped on all these people, or hurt feelings, or, or, or denied and crushed certain values that you would think otherwise the elephant or a responsible person would care about. Or, or sometimes the rider is trying to whip up other elephants into going along in that same direction because elephants are herd animals, they like company. Now I recognize that this picture I'm painting is, is a little strange, and some of you may think it's kind of insulting. That, that you see, see us that way. So I'm, let me just take this away from you for a minute. I see myself this way. I mean, I have experienced, I really looked at this understanding of how humans were, and I went, oh my golly, this is me. Because I get into these conversations sometimes. I'm from a highly political family. Our, our dinner table conversations are, are boxing matches uh, very often. Um, I don't mean just the ones with Amy and me. I mean back to my family of origin. Sometimes we get into these conversations. Somebody drops one of those buzzwords that uh, is clearly from the other political point of view, the one, something a little different from where I would come from. And my, my elephant ears go up. And maybe they criticize a policy or a, a particular elected official that I think is pretty decent. Or they mock a concern. Or, or, or an attitude that I think is, is really an important one. Or they voice support for something that feels, frankly, immoral to me. And wrong, just intuitively wrong. My inner elephant lurches when this happens. In fact, there have been brain studies about this. Uh, where, they, where they take people, they wire them up with electrodes, they find that they just, all you need is one single politically charged word, and it just lights up the brain that intuitive part of the human brain, and we just go into the elephant lurches. And when my elephant lurches, my rider wakes up 
and he, and he goes into action. So I'm sitting at that table with, with somebody I'm having this conversation with, and all of a sudden my rider reaches into his pocket and fumbles around and just starts to come up with reasons for why that person's opinion is wrong and why my particular viewpoint is right. Sometimes I, I'll go out and I'll remind the people I'm talking to of all the other very intelligent people, including God, who back my point of view. They will come back at me with their stuff sometimes. And, uh, and while they're talking, while their writer is talking, my writer is not really taking in a lot of what their writer is saying. My writer is preparing the rebuttal, is ready to come back, or, or, or wishing that he could figure out how to switch the, the focus of the conversation a little bit to a topic he has more material to use on. Right? And when I can't find the words to describe exactly why what I believe is clearly right, I might ramble a little bit. I'm, I'm reaching for that argument I heard on that TV program or that really pithy email I got so that I can use it in this particular conversation. When all else fails, I'll blurt out, I've done this, you're never going to get this. You're never going to get this. Maybe I just storm out of the conversation because it's very obvious this person's not going to be reasonable. But sometimes I just find it easier to go silent. I'll, I'll even pretend to agree uh, tacitly with what is being said at the table because I just don't want the conflict. I find it uncomfortable. And part of the reason why I sometimes find the conflict uncomfortable is because I, I don't have an absolutely airtight case for everything I believe. I mean, there are holes in my reasoning. There are inconsistencies in my behavior. And especially my family members, those who know me closely, they spot those. They bring them up. And that is really uncomfortable. They'll say something like, you know, that is really funny, Dan. I mean, you are clearly all about protecting life. And you protect this kind of life. Why don't you protect that kind of life? What, what's that about? Or, or I see that you hold the Bible very highly. It's an authority for you. And, you, and you've t- said to me, I have to take that particular position because that's what the Bible teaches on that subject. Why are you not equally enthusiastic about what the Bible teaches on that subject? Why do you dismiss the people who are passionate about that part of the biblical teaching? Or I've noticed that you think this is unjust but you don't appear to think that is unjust, and they sure look the same. What's going on? And when those kinds of questions get asked, I remember why I prefer to hang out with my kind of elephant, with my kind of rider, right? It's just so much easier than entering into a conversation like that. My writer will fumble for an answer sometimes, but the truth is that on this particular issue, my elephant just leans that way. Just, that's just what he does. And, and I get uncomfortable around people that don't accept that. 
Now, I tell you all of this because I think it's actually a biblical picture. I actually think this is how the Bible describes how human psychology functions. Proverbs 16 and 9 declares, in his heart, that intuitive, willful, inner part, in his heart, a man plans his course. In other words, it's not, I didn't reason it all out. It's in his heart, it starts. Our moral intuition, our judgment, and I'm using those things, these three words interchangeably, heart, moral intuition, judgment, that comes first, and then our moral reasoning or our justifying of our judgments, our, our, our mental action follows. The elephant of our heart judges that this is the way to go, and then the rider of our mind works to explain it, to justify it, whether that way is truly a righteous way or whether it is a sinful way. And I have many times, my rider is amazing in its capacity to justify my sinful elephant moves in, in my life. Which may be why the psalmist writes, surely the mind and heart of man are cunning. They are cunning. And Proverbs follows, listen and be wise and keep your heart on the right path because it's easy for that elephant to just go where it wants to. Now let me stop there and say, can you see any evidence of the elephant and rider in you? Can you identify with anything I'm saying? Have you ever observed somebody else behaving apparently in that elephant and rider way? Can you see how if the society was a bunch of, of people operating this way, it would account for all of the kind of stomping, the stampeding action we're seeing now in our culture, the, the, the conflict of our times? To others from their herd, blue riders or red riders, uh, liberal or conservative riders, seem very credible and extremely wise when they're talking. And, 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 and as they explain the direction that everybody should go, everybody's got a brain, should obviously have this particular conviction, go on this particular uh, course, as they're explaining it, everybody from their own kind goes, oh, Man, that's so good. I've got to write that down. That's so true. It's so obvious. But for writers and elephants of a different pack, those rationalizations, the, the inconsistencies of the other's pack, like my personal inconsistencies on applying my biblical values, for example, they are so glaring. I mean, they are so obvious to people from the other side that, that, that our behavior on this side looks either comical or criminal. Which is what keeps Bill O'Reilly and John Stewart and the folks at Saturday Night Live employed full time. Very handsomely. Pointing out those incredible inconsistencies and, and, and rationalizations. Um, now, now, you could be the exception to that. You might be the person that, whose, whose life just lines up in all of these different ways. But most of us are less rational or consistent in the application of our stated values than we perceive in other people's spotted. And ironically, when they spot it in us, it further convinces them 
that they are right and we are wrong. And it is part of why we struggle today to get along. Now, further complicating all of this is the fact that different ones of us look at life through different lenses. And this is the second and last big idea I'm going to try and lay down today before letting you go on your way. Uh, And I'll bring it together, hopefully, next week for us. I'm going to stay with this pachyderm analogy, if you can bear it, just a little bit longer. Because as the elephant moves through the jungle of life, he is wearing trifocals. That's the, the second big idea. He is wearing trifocals. You know what trifocals are, right? They're the glasses with three lenses. You're going to tend to look at life through a, one particular lens most often, but you might occasionally reference the other two. The elephant wears these trifocals. Many years ago, a, uh, an eminent moral psychologist by the name of Richard Schwader conducted a global study of human behavior. And he was searching for patterns. And what he discerned were three basically different worldviews by which people tend to come at life. Ethical worldviews. I gave you on the cover of your worship folder a great quotation on this subject. I I would encourage you to look at it. Worldviews are perceptual frameworks. They are ways of seeing Our worldview determines our values, what we see as important. It helps us interpret the world around us. It sorts out what is important from what is not, what is of highest value from what is of least value. A worldview then provides a model of the world which guides its adherence in the world. So what Schwader discovered was that there are the three of these particular dominant lenses that people tend to look at, look, look at life through. And it shapes the way they move through the world. The first of those worldviews, Schwader called the ethic of autonomy. And you will need trifocals to probably to see the screen for this. Letters are small. Uh, those who hold the ethic of autonomy worldview regard people as first and foremost autonomous individuals. The definition of man, an independent, autonomous being who should be free to pursue wants, needs, and self-expression as he or she chooses within you know, limits where they're not causing havoc for other people. Those who have the ethic of autonomy worldview define a good society as one which allows individuals to coexist peacefully without interfering too much with each other's personal projects and preferences. And, and those who have this, look through this lens, value freedom a lot and rights and personal choices very, very highly. And they regard people who insist upon constraining those kinds of liberties as hostile, maybe even dangerous. They're oppressive people. The second of the worldviews that Schwader uncovered was the ethic of community. Those who look through this lens see people, first and foremost, as dependent members of larger entities, like families, or tribes, or societies, or nations. 
They see people not so much as, as autonomous individuals, but as defined by that larger reality to which they are responsible, uh, in which they play a crucial role. And they believe that these communal structures, they believe the job of, of society, a good society, is to, is to foster and preserve those larger communal structures, such as families, teams, tribes, societies, etc., because those structures establish order and they sustain values, and they ultimately work for the benefit of everybody. And so, therefore, those folks place a very high value on responsibility and duty. Uh, a lot of value on respect for authority and hierarchy and tradition. Very important to those with the community ethic. And they regard extreme individualists, or I will, as I'll say in a moment, extreme religionists, as selfish people and bad for the community. Um, The third and final ethical worldview is the ethic of divinity. People with this view regard human beings first and foremost as sacred vessels within, within which God has planted his image. And they believe that a good society is one which helps people develop the character and the conduct befitting a child of God. They place very high moral value on devotion to God, on, on bodily and spiritual disciplines, and on sanctity, on keeping things pure, keeping them from getting degraded. People who look at life through this particular lens sometimes see community-oriented people as not surrendered enough to this God as too bound up in their own little tribal concerns and not enough to this God. And they, they, they regard people who, who are autonomy-oriented as really out there and not getting the nature of the divine world. Now, for most of, of human history, the vast majority of cultures have been either divinity-oriented or community-oriented. I mean, this has been the dominant um, platform in human life. Uh, You can see that if you look around. Asian societies, African societies. Look look very much through the community lens, through through your place in your family group, uh, a, a sense of hierarchy. Islamic societies operate with a very large divinity lens, as we know. The autonomy worldview is a more recent phenomenon. It really grew up with the Enlightenment. And, and, and this viewpoint is one that is associated with what Richard Schweider calls, or Schweider calls, weird people. W-E-I-R-D, capital letters, that's an acronym for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, compared to the world, and Democratic. That means form of government rather than a party. The more weird you are, the more likely that the autonomy lens is going to be something that you look through a lot of the time, even if you have some valuing on the other lenses. And, and, and if you are a North American, that autonomy lens is powerful in your life. Um, you'll look through the, through the autonomy lens even more if you tend to be uh, liberal or libertarian very high um, 
play, uh, player in, in the perspective of, of libertarians and, and liberals, this autonomy idea. Uh, many of us look at life through the community lens, though social conservatives look at through that lens even more frequently, the very deep concern about families and traditions and, 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 and benevolent hierarchies that we see in the conservative viewpoint is a community lens thing. And the divinity lens is a regular viewport for religious liberals and religious conservatives of alike, alike though not all the time. Uh, as I said, if you're in America, that autonomy lens influences even how you think about divinity. And because different ones of us are looking through this lens now, and then that lens, and then that lens, and not all at the same time, and not all in the same way, you can see why our elephants bang their heads and our riders are pummeling each other. And as America grows more complex, and people come in from community-oriented and divinity-oriented nations into this autonomy-oriented society, it gets really, it gets really busy um, here, here in our part of the jungle. What I want to share in conclusion today is the fascinating reality that the ethic of Jesus embraces all three of these worldviews in some way. When Jesus said that we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's telling us that our ultimate devotion in life, our ultimate reference point in life, is meant to be toward the divinity, toward our God. He was saying that our ultimate identity, our ultimate security, will be found as we discover ourselves as children of his household. Uh, though Jesus allows tremendous personal decision-making about whether we're going to accept that place. He does not kill us for not entering into that particular um, identity in this life. When he says, I love your neighbor, love your neighbor, he's reminding us that we've all been created for community. That, that we're not just autonomous individuals, we're meant to regard one another and relate to one another, that our future and our welfare lies in this mutuality. We're supposed to consider and care for each other, even if we're Samaritans, the other people are Jews, or we're left or we're right. Uh, we're meant to, to to work together, even if we disagree. We're to value families. We're to care for fellowships. We're to, to see the importance of relational webs of many different kinds. You can find that all through the teachings of Jesus. And when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he's lifting up the individual. It's not an autonomy understanding, but it is an ethic of individuality. Of the, the, when he says, your father knows the very number of the hairs on your head. The time Jesus spends with individuals, valuing the dignity of persons, individual persons, is, is really striking in a culture that didn't look at people that way. Um, he regularly emphasizes in his teaching his desire that people be free and that they find abundant life, uh, which in some ways is close to, that, to the value of that autonomy vision. In this sense, then, there is some basis within Christianity for a conversation with people who look through any one of those three lenses. You, as a follower of Jesus, have a basis for conversation with people in any of those views. As Christians, we ought to be able to find points of commonality 
and discussion with people all across the cultural and political spectrum today. But it's when we really drill down into some of the specific moral foundations underneath those three worldviews that things get really interesting. And we begin to understand what's going on in our culture in an even deeper way. I think it's there you're going to get an understanding, a firmer handle on what is underlying our boxing matches today and how we could actually make some progress with them. And that is what we're going to return to next weekend. And if you can stand it, I hope you'll join me as we explore that together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, And we know, Lord, that um, you have chosen a world of multiplicity. You've created a rich variety. You could have made it one color. It could have all just been gray. Uh, But you have chosen this marvelous multiplicity, confessing how much we struggle with it. (laughs) We just ask you to guide us as we go forward to show us what it means to be people who live in grace and in truth. And so, walk with us through the jungle, we ask. Open our eyes, move our hearts, sharpen our minds. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.